The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks struggling to end the week on a high note as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen lays out a rough road ahead for both inflation and COVID-19. On the pandemic front, case counts are once again on the rise as the Delta variant continues its spread. Now some cities are reinstating mandates from what seems like a bygone era. Didi under pressure as Chinese regulators step up their probe into the ride-hailing giant. President Biden says U.S. companies are underestimating the risk of doing business in Hong Kong. Now he's preparing to take action over his concerns And Jack Dorsey doubling down on the future of Bitcoin. It's Friday, July 16th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning, TGIF. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan today. Quick check on your Friday morning money. We are seeing stock futures showing very, very modest stability here. You can see the Dow is implied higher by roughly 37 points at the opening bell. The S&P higher by just about three whole points and the Nasdaq up by about five. It was the underperformer yesterday. Now, the Dow remains the only index still positive for the week and is also on pace for a four week winning streak. The Nasdaq is about to snap an eight-week winning streak of its own. Now, we start with this morning's top story and breaking news out of China as regulators there step up their investigation into regional ride-hailing giant DD Global. CNBC's Arjun Karpal joins us now from Guangzhou. Arjun, what exactly can you tell us? This is just the next step that Beijing has taken in really trying to rein in some of those tech giants. Absolutely, Dom. It's been a rough couple of weeks for Didi. I'll just give you that timeline. Just days after that massive IPO, regulators here opened a cybersecurity review into the company. They asked AppSource to pull the app from download. They also told Didi they couldn't sign up any new users. And now seven different regulators have raided the offices of Didi, uh, looking into this cybersecurity review, conducting it here, including the top cyberspace regulator as well as the top antitrust regulator as well. Now, it's unclear exactly how this review process is going to play out, what they're looking for, but it will certainly take a number of weeks to come to a conclusion here. But what's been happening in the background is a few things. Firstly, a number of reports suggesting uh, that regulators have told Didi not to go ahead with this US IPO until it did a self-examination of its network security issues. That is something Didi reportedly ignored and went ahead with anyway, and now the regulators are coming down on it hard. On top of that, you have seen Beijing 
Beijing try to tighten its oversight over any Chinese companies looking to list overseas, including Didi as well. It's boarding a new requirement that any companies that have the user data of over a million users will have to do a cybersecurity review and then ask permission before listing overseas as well. But this is just part of what we're seeing here, a broader crackdown onto the freewheeling tech sector here in China with Beijing trying to rein in the power of some of these tech giants. Didi really just the latest target in this crackdown. Don, back to you. Now, now Arjun, can you take us through maybe some of the ripple effects here? How, how exactly are Didi's competitors, the people in, in, in their kind of competitive landscape, reacting to this raid? And I mean, raid is maybe the wrong word, but this visit by regulators to Didi's HQ out in China. Well, Dom, right now they're circling like sharks. That's the best way to put it. Look, Didi has a 90% market share here in China when it comes to ride-hailing. It acquired Uber's China business back in 2016. It expanded aggressively. It's not really left much room for other competitors to take away share. However, many are now seeing an opportunity to jump in. Meituan, a massive food delivery giant here in China, relaunched a standalone ride-hailing app just a few days ago, offering very big discounts for, for new users. And you're seeing that a number of other platforms, one called Cao Cao, which is actually backed by car maker called Geely. They are offering a ton of discounts and subsidies for driver and T3, another company which is actually backed by Tencent and Alibaba as well, uh, are also offering big discounts as well. So you're seeing them try to aggressively come in, uh, bring out uh, and grab new users. And that's what's happening right now in the China ride hailing uh, users. They smell blood and they're going after trying to chip away at that big market share. Don, back to you. All right. Arjun Karpal in Guangzhou, China. Thank you very much. Sticking with that China story, two developing stories when it comes to U.S.-China relations. Following reports this morning that President Biden will warn U.S. companies about doing business in Hong Kong amid the deteriorating situation in the regional finance capital. Now, this comes amid talks that U.S. attempts to reach out to China for lower level talks about a possible Xi-Biden summit have failed now on multiple fronts. Our own Eunice Yoon has the latest from Beijing. Good evening to you, Eunice. Thanks, Dom, and good morning to you. Well, U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman is expected to come out to Asia next week, and there have been some rumbling that it could be possible that the U.S. officials were hoping that she would have a meeting with her Chinese counterpart in the port city of Tianjin. It looks as though now, from various reports, that the Chinese have rejected that idea. And as you were saying, the whole hope for these lower-level meetings was that it would pave the way for a meeting between um, Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, and the Chinese Foreign Minister, Wang Yi, which would eventually then lead to a summit between President Xi and President Biden. Uh, however, of course, this idea is coming at a time when uh, China is quite sensitive about the U.S.'s recent moves, especially when it comes to Xinjiang or, in particular, Hong Kong. Uh, there, has been, there have been um, several reports now that the U.S. is uh, considering slapping more sanctions on Chinese officials over the um, over the way the uh, Beijing has been treating Hong Kong, especially when it comes to national security, and that the U.S. is considering issuing a business advisory for American businesses in Hong Kong and how they operate. So the U.S. alert uh, would be about the quote deteriorating 
business climate, um, one of the key messages would be about the independent um, legal system and how um, the, the city's famous, famously um, independent legal system uh, could be uh, subject to Beijing interference. Um, the advisory is set to be issued on Friday. And um, Dom, just so you know how, how sensitive China is, for the past couple of days, uh, the foreign ministry has been um, um, frustrated with this, calling the campaign sinister. Uh, there has been a step up uh, of China being more involved in what we think is supposed to be an autonomous kind of region that, that is owned by China but should be able to operate independently. What exactly has the, the recent crackdown looked like? I mean, the new laws, the new rules in place have led to police actions there. Just how intense is it for some of the anti-China kind of protesters that are happening, uh, or, or at least protests that are happening in Hong Kong right now? From a business perspective, it's created a lot of uncertainty. People are worried about what could happen. And depending on which sector they're in, some people are deciding to leave or are starting to rethink uh, what they should do. Um, th these areas would be people who are in law or in accounting, anything where your industry is based on the on rule of law. However, um, I've spoken before to several businesses there, and including the um, head of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong, who said that still... Uh, you know, it hasn't had a massive effect in terms of an exodus from Hong Kong. And that's because Hong Kong's role is really changing. Instead of being a kind of a, a window into China for the West, it's more of a window into uh, to, into China and to try to really get Hong Kong sure. more closely knitted with mainland China when it comes to the businesses there. All right. So uh, big developments in the relations there. Uh, thank you very much, Eunice Yoon. B back home here, new concerns are rising over the risks of the COVID-19 Delta variant as U.S. case counts are now more than double what they were from just one month ago. NBC's Tracy Potts is in Washington, D.C. with more on that. Good morning, Tracy. Hey, Dom, good morning. Yes, yeah, sort of a good news, bad news situation. While the government says it may be close to approving a vaccine for children before the end of this year, uh, the briefing at the White House today, the president's briefing later today, will also focus on this recent surge in cases. The deadly Delta variant has created a new surge in 40 states, with COVID cases doubling daily in the past three weeks. Some hospitals are running out of beds again, with vaccination rates dropping and 98 million Americans still not protected. It spreads more easily, so it's going to find those pockets in each community where people aren't vaccinated, and it's going to do a lot of damage. The Surgeon General issued a rare warning against misinformation. Health misinformation has led people to resist wearing masks in high-risk settings. It's led them to turn down proven treatments and to choose not to get vaccinated. This has led to avoidable illnesses and death. The White House called out Facebook. Facebook needs to move more quickly to remove harmful, uh, uh, violative posts. In a statement, Facebook says it's taking aggressive action against misinformation, removing more than 18 million posts and accounts. Local governments are also taking action. Effective Sunday, Los Angeles County will require masks for everyone indoors, even those vaccinated. So that we can stop the and level of, of transmission we're currently seeing. The FDA is now reviewing data for a vaccine for children under age 12, likely available this winter. Four million kids in this country have tested positive, Dom, but very few of them have been hospitalized or died.
All right. A big deal here for the coming school year, for sure. Tracy Potts live in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. When we come back on the show, Janet Yellen is sounding the alarm over what she calls rapid inflation. The full comments from the Treasury Secretary coming up next. Plus, CNBC takes a closer look at the wave of unemployment fraud, totaling some $39 billion during the pandemic. And later on, the 18-year-old who will join Jeff Bezos on his flight into space. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. I think we, have, we will have several more months of rapid inflation. So I'm not saying that this is a one-month phenomenon, but I think over the medium term, we'll see inflation decline back toward normal levels. But, of course, we have to keep a careful eye on it. All right, that was Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on the closing bell just yesterday. Inflation fears certainly in front and center for many investors out there, especially with Fed Chairman Jay Powell this week committing to keeping his foot on the pedal in terms of supporting the economic recovery. Joining me now is Hightower Chief Investment Strategist and CNBC contributor Stephanie Link. Uh, Stephanie, those comments between Powell and then Treasury Secretary Yellen, I, I mean, they are putting a huge focus now on this idea that inflation, yes, is a problem, but is still going to be transitory. He used the words, Powell did. Janet Yellen is saying that, yes, it could just be a little bit more medium term. Still, though, should markets be fearful of this inflation story? I don't. Good, good morning. I, I don't think it's fearful. It's just recognizing that what's your definition of transitory? How long is transitory? If it's medium term and long term, you can see this lasting for quite some time. We know there are supply chain issues. It's going to take a long time to fix those supply chain issues. But there is inflation, Dom. No question about it. I mean, you have a CPI annualized at five percent. You have, and by the way, 10 percent in the last three months alone on an annualized basis. PPI at seven percent annualized. Um, and I look at the prices paid in the ISM uh, report and you're at back to 1979 levels and you have wage increases, which is more sticky. And you have shelter now actually on the rise because moratoriums have been lifted. So part of this is going to be transitory whatever that even means in terms of the timeline, but some of it's not going to be transitory. I think the wages in the shelter are really things to keep an eye on. Look, we've got 9.2 million job openings out there, and the, uh, the uh, economist at, in, in the, um, from the Jolt uh, company is saying that you can't 
people can't find uh, the companies can't find jobs, people to to fill these jobs. So they have to actually cr- increase wages. So these are all, and plus you and I have anecdotal information about uh, the, the the pressures that we're seeing in terms of pricing. So the key going forward is do companies have pricing power? And that's what's going to be actually top of mind, at least for me, in earnings season. What do margins look like, and how are these companies passing along these price increases? So, so, so Stephanie, I mean, as you kind of look at what what, what what's happening from this inflation landscape. Are, are there certain types of companies, certain companies that will weather that storm more? Uh, are they the, the ones who have pricing power? What kind of companies are you looking at with regard to who will benefit in the longer term because of this story? Well, it's interesting because we just heard from Pepsi this week, right? And they have pricing power. And last quarter, all of the, not all of them, but many of the consumer staples companies did say that they were going to increase prices and pass that through. So I think the staples can, can, can handle this. I think discretionary, you're going to see better price increases as well, especially as consumer demand remains very strong. Restaurants, certainly. Um, and I will also say, I think some of these industrial companies are going to see some pricing power. Caterpillar said that they actually are starting to raise prices. They indicated last quarter that in June of this year that they were going to start to to raise prices. So we'll have to listen to some of these industrial companies and and how they are faring. But I think that they will be able uh, to increase prices as well. Look, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you have to step back. You got to just step back and say, why is inflation uh, on the rise? It's because growth is on the rise. Right. That's a good thing that growth is on the rise. We we have a very strong consumer. We have very, very strong uh, manufacturing inventories at five year lows. So. I mean, this is a good thing, right? The growth part of the story is good. The inflation, we got to watch it. But I think with low interest rates, this combination of all three is very positive for equities over the longer term. Stephanie, before we let you go here, you mentioned growth, you mentioned inflation, the good and the bad kind. Why is it that Treasury investors will still accept 1.33% yield for 10 years if that growth story is intact? I know it's really that's the conundrum, right? We're all kind of scratching our heads. Was it the, is it technical? Was there record shorts? Uh, everyone caught on the wrong side. Is it the Fed? Is it the BOJ? Is it uh, the ECB letting now letting inflation run hotter than expected? Is it the is it the, the Delta variant? There's a lot of different things. But look, I think at the end of the day, you got to, again, step back and say low interest rates are pretty good for the consumer and for corporations. And so and also risk assets. So um, but it is something to watch because obviously the bond market is a very good tell usually. Um, but it is getting a bit distorted because of all of the, the monetary policies around the world. All right. Stephanie Link at Hightower. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend. You too. Still on deck for the show, Colonial Pipeline may be back up and running, but a class action complaint filed against the company is likely just the beginning of its legal troubles. Details ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back. During the virus pandemic, a wave of unemployment made the world of benefits a prime target for fraud. According to the Labor Department, improper payments amounted to $39 billion nationwide. The bulk of this fraud involved identity theft. But more than 100,000 recipients nationwide reported a different kind of fraud, transaction fraud, where criminals steal the unemployment insurance from their accounts. 
A CNBC investigation revealed that a cost-saving but outdated technology fueled this type of theft. Our own Leslie Picker has the report. When schools and venues shut down during the pandemic, performer and part-time music teacher Azurai Moon found himself out of work. I had to actually go on unemployment insurance. Those benefits were a lifeline until October when he discovered all but a few dollars were stolen. My entire account was cleared out. It kind of put me in a really difficult situation. Without those funds, Moon became temporarily homeless, living in his car for weeks. To sleep, I would usually kind of like lay against that side of the car and lay my legs over the center console. Moon and millions of other unemployed Americans receive their state benefits through debit cards like these. But they lack chips, a common security barrier against fraud. Still, 45 states plus D.C. use debit cards, mostly without chips, although many also give recipients a direct deposit option. Our investigation found that states like California and Nevada saw an outsized share of stolen benefits during the pandemic because they had a greater reliance on chipless debit cards. A card without a chip, that's really easy to copy. Criminals can then take the duplicate card to an ATM for cash, according to cybersecurity experts such as IBM's Charles Henderson. It's just a matter of picking up a reader writer for the magstripe and duplicating it, just like a photocopy. And I would presume that it would be impossible to replicate a card with an actual chip on it. It is extremely expensive and cost prohibitive for criminals to manufacture a card with a chip in it. A big reason why these cards had a lower level of security in the first place comes down to cost. California hired Bank of America years ago to distribute unemployment insurance on its behalf. Their contracts show that the state only requested cards with magnetic stripes, not chips. California recently extended its contract with B of A, although the bank tells CNBC it would like to exit this business as soon as possible. That's because the bank says it's lost hundreds of millions of dollars in 2020 alone due to transaction fraud in state benefits. I was like shocked. I couldn't believe it was actually happening to me. Single mom Vanessa Rivera experienced this type of fraud firsthand and blames the bank and the lack of card security. I had to actually break my son's piggy bank. It was sad, but to have my son tell me that he knows that I'm stressing, that he knows that I'm struggling, that was the heartbreaking moment. Rivera, along with fellow single mom Candace Cool and Moon, are part of a class action lawsuit against Bank of America, alleging the firm failed to fully investigate their fraud claims and quickly credit their accounts when the funds were stolen. Together, they say they've lost more than $10,000. I developed depression, anxiety. Cool was at the grocery store trying to buy food for herself and her toddler when she she discovered the missing funds. I was sobbing. I didn't know what to do because that was her life at that moment. And it was a really scary moment. B of A said in court documents that from October 2020 through March 2021, about 255,000 fraud claims were filed, of which the firm approved repayments to about half. In a statement to CNBC, B of A said that its number one goal has always been to ensure legitimate recipients could access their benefits. What was going on with Bank of America at the time was really exhausting. After months of back and forth, Bank of America gave Moon, Cool, and Rivera credit for their missing funds, but they say their lives had already been upended. This is people's lives that you're messing with. This is my life that you're messing with. This is his life, her life. I feel very, like, punched in the gut. 
Amid our questioning over the last few months, Bank of America and the state of California told CNBC they are in the process of transitioning to chip-based cards. Pending California legislation would also add a direct deposit option for benefits. Bank of America sees this type of work in several states, including Kansas, Maryland, and Nevada in recent months. We called other banks that provide these benefits, including U.S. Bank, Comerica, and KeyBank. Only KeyBank responded, declining to provide any further commentary on fraud incidents due to ongoing investigations. Don. All right. Thank you very much, Leslie Picker, for that story. Now let's get a check on this morning's other top headlines. NBC's Philip Mena is in New York with the latest. Good Friday morning, Philip. Good Friday morning to you, Dom. At least 50 people are dead and more than 1,000 others are missing after catastrophic flooding in Germany. According to authorities, storms caused rivers to burst their banks, sweeping away cars and causing homes to collapse. And in neighboring Belgium, at least eight are reported dead after another river overflowed, sending torrents of water tearing through those streets. A deadly 11-hour standoff has finally ended in Texas. Police responded to a report of a man acting strangely and carrying a large gun. After trying to make contact, SWAT commander Josh Bartlett was killed and four officers wounded. Just hours ago, the suspect was taken into custody using a police robot that was sent into his house. That suspect was injured. And a police sergeant is in stable but critical condition this morning. The other wounded officers have been treated and released. And another historic pick for the crew of Blue Origin's maiden flight. An 18-year-old Dutch physics student has joined the crew and will become the youngest person to travel to space. Oliver Damon is taking the place of an unnamed auction winner who dropped out over scheduling conflicts. The teenager will join Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, his brother, and 82-year-old aviation trailblazer Wally Funk. So that means, Dom, that Tuesday's scheduled flight will carry both the oldest and the youngest people ever to go to space. So big week next week for all those involved and really for the future of space travel. So, so Philip, would you, would you take the trip if someone offered it to you? Absolutely. Maybe not the first one, but, you know, <laughs> fifth or sixth one, I'd take it in a heartbeat. It's not something I would consider a first mover advantage type situation for That's me, right. Philip Pena. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, sir. You too. Well, soda cans, hunting and vaccinations. Your big Friday money movers are coming up when Worldwide Exchange returns after this. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen painting a bleak picture when it comes to the global economy and the rising risks of COVID-19 variants. Intel closing in on its biggest deal ever as it looks to supply an industry still caught up in the throes of a massive supply shock. Plus, we lay out and discuss the biggest issues facing small business owners across America right now. It's Friday, July 16th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan this Friday morning. And here is how stock futures are looking as we are halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern time hour. The gains are going to be modest at the opening bell, at least if these futures moves hold into regular trading. Right now, the Dow is implied higher by roughly 40 points, the S&P higher by about five points, and the Nasdaq higher by roughly 20 points.
On the bond side of things, 10-year government Treasury note yields are still in focus here. They are ticking just slightly higher, just a hair below 1.33% for the benchmark 10-year Treasury note. The two-year note yield just a little bit above that 23.5 basis point mark, or 0.235%. On the oil side of things, still watching what's happening with crude because we are seeing prices still lower on the day, or rather the week. You can see the prices are higher by roughly... Oh, half a percent, $72.07. World, uh, World West Texas Intermediate, rather, is coming off its lowest settle since June 18th. It's right now on pace for its worst week since March 19th. So oil, very much a key focus for traders. Let's get to some of this morning's other top stories as well. Bertha Coombs is here with those. Bertha, good morning. Hey, good morning, Dom. Intel is reportedly in talks to buy semiconductor maker Foundry, Global Foundries for about $30 billion. This according to the Wall Street Journal. The move would turbocharge Intel's plans to boost its chip output and would be its largest acquisition ever. The deal is far from complete and Global Foundries could proceed with an already planned IPO. Jack Dorsey announcing the creation of a new Square division dedicated to building decentralized financial services with a primary focus being Bitcoin. In a series of tweets yesterday, the CEO of Square and Twitter said, like Square's new Bitcoin hardware wallet, the development would be completely open, open roadmap, open development and open source. The new business, right now referred to as TBD, will combine the efforts of cash app seller and title in the same goal of decentralized finance. Canada says it will allow cruise ships to operate in its waters starting in November if operators complete, comply fully with public health requirements. The move coming much earlier than expected as the country had originally banned cruising in Canada through February 20th, 22. And Wall Street could close markets for Juneteenth starting in 2022. The Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association, known as SIFMA, is recommending bond markets close in observance of the nation's biggest uh, uh, in observance. The nation's biggest banks are all members of SIFMA and normally follow the group's recommended holiday schedules. NYSE execs have recently said the big board will close for the new federal holiday. So Bank holiday, market holiday coming in June, it looks like, Dom. Big deal there for sure. Thank you very much, Bertha Coombs, for those headlines. We'll talk to you later on. Small businesses in America continue to struggle as they face inflation increases and labor shortages. According to data out this week from the NFIB, almost half of U.S. small businesses had job openings in June they could not fill. The number is down just two percentage points from May when we saw a record of 48 percent. Factors behind the employment shortage range from wages being too low to the enhanced unemployment benefits to child care issues to concerns about covid. For a deeper look at the sector, let's bring in John Stanford, co-executive director of the Small Business Roundtable. John, I'm looking at the latest data from the government with regard to job openings and labor turnover. It says that we have in the month of May an estimated 9.2 million open job positions. Why is it that small businesses cannot find people to hire? 
Well, I thank you. First of all, thanks for having me back, Dom. I think you laid out some of the key issues uh, that they're facing. There is an element, um, I know that we've talked a lot about the role of unemployment insurance, but there's other things. People are scared to come back to work in some places. In other places, childcare, transportation issues. We aren't fully humming as an economy, which means workers don't have the supports they need to get themselves back in the door of small businesses. And so we're seeing small businesses try to deal with this. But without a doubt, this is the number one issue holding back small businesses from unleashing their full recovery potential. I would say that anecdotally, even even in the areas that I live in right now, close to where I live in, there are help wanted signs everywhere. What exactly can these business owners do to entice people or to get people back in the door so they can go back to work, get back to full operations and get this economy really going? Well, you know entrepreneurs. We're a resilient bunch. We're seeing all sorts of innovation in the, in the space, more flexible hours, giving part-time workers more time. The number one thing that we're seeing is we're seeing try- people trying to raise benefits. But of course, that is a cost, and that's a cost that's going to get passed on to consumers. And so we're going to also see this going to tie into that feel of inflation and higher costs because small businesses are going to have to pay their workers more. But we're also seeing people trying things with new technology. We're seeing things like same-day pay and other ways where entrepreneurs and small businesses are meeting their workers where they are. But you can only do so much. If people can't come back, it's those Main Street shops that can't get workers back in the door. And it's a crisis. What happens if, because we've mentioned it before, I mean, small business in America it is pretty much the backbone of the American economy. We, we often talk about these massive mega cap technology companies and what they do and how much they're worth. But when it comes down to it, the job engine in America is very much driven by small business. What exactly happens if come the fall and there's these variant concerns going on, if, if those small businesses cannot get back up and running? What exactly does that mean for the overall economy in, the, in America? You're going to see a tremendous pull against the economy. If small businesses can't flourish, the economy can't flourish. One in two people work for a small business. So we've got and those small businesses are desperately looking for more people. So it would be it would be a travesty. The last time I was on, we talked about how that optimism window for small business owners, they thought they were turning the corner. If we don't turn the corner and all of the supports like PPP and others over the last years fade away, That means we're going to be in a worse spot than we were even March, April, May of last year. How important is it for small business owners? I mean, it seems like a double edged sword, John. This idea that we had enhanced unemployment benefits, we gave out stimulus checks, all of those things put money in consumer pockets for them to hopefully spend at small businesses. At the same time, an argument has been made that those benefits have kept people out of the workforce. So where exactly is the balance for small businesses and and where does your organization stand on how we should treat those unemployment benefits in the future in this kind of a scenario? Well, I think where where we are looking is these unemployment benefits, these supplementary ones are coming to an end. And I think we also are looking at things like child care and transportation. We know that what humans are experiencing, what workers are experiencing is a host of issues. We're putting a lot of focus and really hoping this administration and Congress will invest in workforce training, because just as much as it is, we can't get workers in the door. We can't get qualified workers in the door. And I think that's an important takeaway is it's not just about finding anyone to fill the right position. 
the thing I hear most from small business owners is we're not finding the right people with the right skills. And so we've got to be investing at the federal, state and local level in preparing our workforce. All right. John Stanford with the latest on small business sentiment. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend, sir. Thanks, Dom. Coming up on the show, remember the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack a couple months ago. One of the late nation's largest sources of fuel was taken offline, leading to gasoline shortages and price spikes across the eastern U.S. Now one gas station is leading a class action lawsuit against the Colonial Pipeline. Amron Javers will join us with the investigative reporting he has on that. But first, as we head out to break, some of your other top stories. American Airlines is canceling voluntary leaves of 3,300 flight attendants, calling them back by the end of the year in an effort to meet the growing demand for travel. The carrier also plans to hire 800 new flight attendants by March of 2022. PayPal is increasing its weekly cryptocurrency purchase limit fivefold to $100,000. That's up from a previous limit of $20,000. The company is also scrapping its annual purchase limit of $50,000. PayPal first started letting users buy cryptocurrency in October of 2020 and was seen as a key step in the mainstream adoption of the asset class. And ServiceMax, a software company backed by private equity firm Silver Lake, General Electric and Salesforce.com has agreed to go public and merge with a special purpose acquisition company or SPAC, Pathfinder Acquisition Corp. The deal values ServiceMax at $1.4 billion. Check out the shares of that SPAC. PFDR up 3.5% pre-market. We are back after this. Welcome back to the show. Time now for your big money movers. Three stock stories of the morning. Shares of Moderna are surging in the pre-market on news. The stock will be added to the S&P 500 on July 21st. The company will replace Alexian Pharmaceuticals, which itself is being bought by AstraZeneca. Shares of Alcoa are under pressure this morning, despite some posting some record profits on surging aluminum prices. The global aluminum producer says it saw its equity rise 0.9%. On better-than-expected second-quarter earnings, Alcoa posted adjusted earnings of $1.49 a share, topping estimates of $1.29. The company reported revenues of $2.83 billion. That was also above forecast. Those shares up half a percent pre-market. And shares of American outdoor brands are sinking ahead of the opening bell after the outdoors equipment supplier reported fiscal fourth-quarter sales below what analysts had expected. Per-share profits did, however, come in above expectations. Those shares down 9% in the pre-market trade. Well, it's been more than two months since Colonial Pipeline was the victim of a ransomware attack. And since then, the company has been hit with a class action lawsuit. The plaintiff, a gas station whose pumps ran dry for eight days. Eamon Javers has that story. I'm losing customers. I'm losing business. That's what Ahmad Darwich, who goes by Eddie, told his supplier when his gas pump ran dry after the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. Eddie manages an Easy Mart in Wilmington, North Carolina, where he sells gas and runs a convenience store. When the gas sun is off, they didn't even bolin. Easy Mart is the lead plaintiff in a class action complaint filed against Colonial last month. According to the suit, Easy Mart saw its sales dip nearly $8,000 in May. The same month, ransomware gang Darkside attacked the company. The claim that we seek to advance on behalf of uh, the class is one of negligence. 
That is, this company was uh, using a legacy system, allowing remote access without multi-factor authentication. John Yanchunas is one of the attorneys representing the plaintiff in the complaint, which alleges Colonial failed to properly secure the pipeline, resulting in fuel shortages for more than 11,000 gas stations. In a statement, Colonial tells CNBC it can't comment on pending litigation, but said the company worked around the clock to safely restart the pipeline. But it's Colonial's planning prior to the cyber attack that's central to the allegation of negligence, an issue that came up in a congressional hearing. Did you have a plan uh, for cybersecurity response that included guidance about ransomware? Senator, specifically, no no, uh, discussion about ransom and action to ransom. The Colonial case, unlike most cyber breaches which deal with stolen data, involves physical damage, and that presents new legal questions. The question that's raised with this is what, co- what liabilities, what responsibilities does Colonial have? Colonial Pipeline is the primary target, but other people are impacted by it. Now, Dom, there's a lot of questions here that we ought to consider, and this is just getting started. So a couple of important details on this for you. One is uh, this class action complaint was filed in the Northern District of Georgia on June 21st. Colonial now has until August 24th to file what's called a responsive pleading. Uh, Now, a judge is still going to need to determine if it meets the criteria for a class action. So if the case moves forward as a class, this could be a years-long process. So they are just getting started here. It's early days in this, Dom. so, 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 Eamon, I, I mean, we know that you're not a lawyer, but but what exactly is Definitely the law not. on this? This is this is uh, is there is there has there ever been any kind of precedent for, for something like this for a class action lawsuit? Well, they're sorting through all that right now. And the big legal question is, what is the level of cybersecurity that you have to have uh, to be adequate and below which, uh, you know, you're negligent? And that's sort of a fuzzy area, right? And then ultimately, who has to pay? Is this an act of God like a hurricane, or is this something that you could see coming and you need to have some preparation for? Uh, and then all of that's going to be sorted out if this does go forward, which is still, as I said, uh, to be determined. If it does go forward, all that's going to have to be sorted out uh, in terms of the details of this specific case. So a lot of companies are going to be watching this to see what their liability could be going forward. This is going to be an important one for the entire industry to pay attention to. Not just this industry, but every industry, possibly right. precedent-setting. Eamon Javers, thank you very much for that. Coming up on the show, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning that the Delta COVID variant is a threat to the global economy, and she's not the only one worried. What investors need to know coming up next. And if you haven't already done so, please follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple or Spotify or other podcast apps. Worldwide Exchange in audio format. We'll be right back. I do think it's a risk. I think it's not just a question of the United States. It's a question of risks around the world. Um, I am very concerned that although advanced countries are making good progress with vaccination in many parts of the world, and especially in low-income countries, vaccination rates are extremely low. Um, As long as that's true and this uh, virus uh, easily transmittable um, across borders, we really have to worry about the development of um, variants that could pose um, future threats. That was Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen yesterday on the closing bell. Her comments coming as Goldman Sachs in a new note late yesterday says the COVID-19 Delta variant could, quote, significantly 
hit growth in Southeast Asia. The investment bank slashing growth forecast by more than 100 basis points or one full percent for Indonesia, Malaysia and the Philippines. Joining us now is John Solsvis, Oppenheimer Asset Management Chief Investment Strategist. Uh, should we be worried, John, about some of the impact of the COVID variants on developing economies, especially in places like Asia? You know, Dominic, I very much think so. In, in fact, we can't help but think that's one of the reasons why we have seen uh, some of the uh, international markets uh, suffer in performance of, uh, recently. Uh, the question is, how are they going to come out of this? Uh, and so between uh, the questions related to inflation and the questions related to the variants, uh, the market does have underlying concern and has uh, a wall of worry that it will need to climb during this period. All right. So in many measures of the emerging market, we're showing the one of the ETFs that tracks it right now, the ticker EEM. That's the iShares Emerging Market ETF there. Mm-hmm. It's been pretty much kind of range bound for a while. Is the next leg lower if this COVID variant, the Delta variant, starts to really take hold? We're already seeing some underperformance in key parts of those markets. Dominic, I I think it would most certainly be a a, a potential for a next leg lower if that variant uh, does take hold and it begins to cause shutdowns. It really depends. You know, the the sense with the variant at this point is ultimately... Uh, what it would do if it's left to to run, it, it, it's open-ended as to what the damage would be. So we'll just have to see. Uh, thus far, what we, we could uh, could expect is is we'll have to monitor the situation. But we do not think it is at a critical point, at least at this point, especially considering the advancements in the vaccines that have been made over the course of the last year. So, so John, if that is the case, I mean, markets are still they've seen some weakness, you can argue, as of late, but they're still within a stone's throw away from record highs. Is the market in a position where it's vulnerable to uh, to possible downside, given this kind of a, a uncertainty, I guess, around Delta, the Delta variant? Yeah, Dominic, we always think that, you know, the market is always vulnerable to downside uh, if if traders, nervous investors uh, and uh, skeptics uh, can find a, a reason uh, for a catalyst that can enable them to take some profits at these high levels without FOMO. That said, earnings season is looking good stateside. And as we move forward, uh, and, and so long as the, the variant can be controlled or stemmed, uh, you know, we're headed out of the woods. So if we're heading out of the woods, that to me has signaled, at least for the pandemic recovery trade, places like travel and leisure, Places like industrial, certain other uh, deep value kind of cyclical plays, commodities, that sort of thing. Does that mean that that's where you should go, given that we've seen those places underperform in the last couple of months? Yeah, Dom, we, we have to say when, when we look at this, we want a broader exposure. We want to own consumer discretionary. We want to own technology. And then we want to barbell it with industrials and and. Uh, uh, as well as uh, industrials, as well as uh, materials and financials. And the reason for that is we think this is a market that maintains a position day to day, week to week, where it can rotate and rebalance very much between reopening trade, growth trade, growth versus value. It's broad diversification is the best way. And from what we're seeing here, thus far, is we are seeing investors, both institutional as well as retail, as well as private client, using professional advisory 
really opting more and more for diversification. And we think that's a good thing. All right. Uh, before we let you go, just about 10 seconds left here. Interest rates, are they a worry right now? Uh, interest rates, something to be monitored, but we think they will rise gradually because we think there are secular offsets to inflation. All right. Perfect. John Stolfus, thank you so much. Have a nice weekend. Same to you, Tom. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.